0: good evening. Um, I am not the normal guy. I'm subbing in. If you're visiting here, I feel it's probably fair for you to know that. But uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk with you all for a moment tonight. So you'll recall, after the kingdom of Israel split into two different kind of nation states, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south, pretty quickly after that happened, both of those kingdoms started to slip into moral decline, and God warned both of those kingdoms that he was going to destroy them for their behavior, and they didn't listen. So eventually Israel in the north was destroyed by Assyria, and Judah in the south was destroyed by the nation of Babylon, but where Judah was concerned, God leveled all kinds of Promises of judgment and destruction at that kingdom, but mixed in with those promises of judgment were also promises of redemption and restoration. God said, I'm going to destroy you, and I'm going to send you away, but then I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. I'm going to help you restore the city and rebuild the temple. So eventually, the kingdom of Babylon, where the Jerusalem captives are, falls to the Persians. And the king of Persia sends a group of the Jerusalem captives back to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And when they get there, construction rushes forward and they're excited and happy. Uh, but pretty quickly, after the foundation is laid, they start facing opposition from foreigners who have settled the surrounding area and even from the Persian king himself at one point, and they quit building the temple. They get discouraged and they quit. But God sends prophets. To the builders to talk to them one of whom is the prophet Haggai so if you go ahead and turn to Haggai chapter one our anchor text uh, this evening is going to be in Haggai chapter two it's kind of funny David and I did not intend I don't think to talk about the temple on the same day Uh, all I know is that last week sometime I told David that I was planning to talk about the temple and the next thing I know here he comes talking about the temple, so you can make whatever you want of that. Obviously, I've drawn my own conclusions, but no. No, all joking aside, David did an excellent job this morning. He actually let me borrow his notes to help prepare for my lesson tonight. So really, if anybody's copying, it's me. So, <laughs> But um, hopefully I can add to some of the things he said this morning. So in Haggai chapter 1, we're going to read this call that the Lord gives to the builders of the temple in chapter 1 and verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So God calls the people to resume the work rebuilding the temple. And they listen. And they do rebuild the temple. But there's a group of individuals among the builders who are discouraged. Because they remember what the first temple looked like. And apparently this new one that they're building is not nearly as good or glorious as the old one that they remember, and they're upset about it. And God offers to these individuals a very important and prophetic piece of comfort in Haggai chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 6. This is part of the passage that was read for us earlier. Phrase that I would like to really zero in on for a moment tonight when God says the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And the reason I want to spend some time examining that specific promise in the book of Haggai tonight is because it's a troublesome one for a lot of people these days. In fact, if you take this promise and you put it against a picture of Jerusalem today, which I have done, this is a picture of the Temple Mount today, that's a Muslim shrine that's sitting on it, If you do that, at its face value, it doesn't really look like God did keep this promise in the book of Haggai. And in fact, that's a popular worldview today. It's popular even in Western evangelical circles, the idea that we should support the reinstitution and the rebuilding of some kind of physical temple in Jerusalem, because by doing that, we will usher in biblical prophecies like this one. And that idea is predicated on the notion that God didn't fulfill his promise in the book of Haggai, about the temple, or at least hasn't fulfilled it yet. And there are lots of arguments made to that effect today. And we are going to examine them tonight in their turn, in the interest, hopefully, of of, uh, defeating them, ultimately. But we are going to play devil's advocate for a little bit. We're going to step into the argument that we are still waiting for God to establish his temple. And that he has not, or he did not, fulfill his promises about it. And that idea begins with the argument that the glory of the new temple didn't match and certainly didn't exceed the glory of Solomon's temple the way that God said it would. So let's uh, jog our memories here about Solomon's temple. We're going to turn back to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 3. So the books of Chronicles are full of all kinds of interesting details about Solomon's temple and what it was like and all the work that went into it and all the the physical glory uh, of Solomon's temple. We're just going to read a couple of short passages here. The first one we're going to read is in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 4. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and its height was 120 cubits. He, that Solomon, overlaid it on the inside with pure gold. The nave he lined with cypress and covered it with fine gold and made palms and chains on it. He adorned the house with settings of precious stones, and the gold was gold of parvaim. So he lined the house with gold, its beams, its thresholds, its walls, and its doors, and he carved cherubim on the walls. And he made the most holy place. Its length, corresponding to the breadth of the house, was 20 cubits, and its breadth was 20 cubits. He overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. The weight of gold for the nails was 50 shekels, and he overlaid the uppermost chambers with gold. So this is a very small section of verses compared to all the detail we get about the physical glory of the temple. And already it's pretty clear how amazing this building would have been. It's covered in gold. Totally extravagant. And in fact, if you flip just a little bit ahead in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, so the temple is complete. Solomon says this long prayer about it, dedicating the temple. And after Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles 7, we read, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down, and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement, and worshipped, and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the glory of the Lord totally consumes this temple in such an overwhelming fashion that the priests can't even go in. It's a totally amazing event. And just concerning the number of sacrifices that are offered here, just that number of sheep, 120 sheep, if you compare that with the number of sacrifices that are made at the dedication of the temple, the second temple in Ezra, it's not even close. So just in terms of literal scale, the temple that Zerubbabel helps the people build in the book of Ezra literally does not quite match the scale of Solomon's temple, and we can observe that contrast if we go to the book of Ezra. So we're going to flip over there now. Book of Ezra and the third chapter is where we're going to read. So at this point in the book of Ezra, the first group of Jerusalem captives, they've returned to Jerusalem. Obviously, Solomon's temple is destroyed at this point and has been for a long time. And this group is led by a man named Zerubbabel. And at this point in the book, they have laid the foundation of the temple. And that's all. And in verse 11 of chapter 3, the second half of verse 11, we can begin reading. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So some people are upset. Because already it's just the foundation, there's no temple yet, but already it looks like this temple is going to be nothing like Solomon's temple. And in fact, some people are so upset by that that their sounds of sadness start to drown out the sounds of joy of everybody else such that people outside the city can't tell if the collective noise is happy or not. But perhaps that's okay. Because God does, we've read the promise that God gives to these individuals in Haggai. And he tells them, I know you don't think this house looks like much, but I am going to make it much. It's my paraphrase, of course. But that's what he tells them. And perhaps we see a move towards that in Herod's temple. So this is a picture of Herod's temple and uh, what it would have looked like. So there's a long period of history between Zerubbabel's temple and Herod's temple. And in that period of history, the Jews in Jerusalem enjoy relative peace and prosperity. They have some issues. They're picked on by a couple of different groups. The Ptolemies is one group. They actually have to fight a group called the Seleucids at one point in there during a series of revolts called the Maccabean Revolts just to recapture the temple. But by the time we arrive at about 63 BC, Rome has now taken control of Jerusalem. And about 40 years after that, in 20 BC, a Roman ruler called Herod, we've all heard of Herod, decides he wants to build a new temple in Jerusalem. And the project actually goes pretty well. Herod goes to great lengths to make sure he doesn't aggravate the Jews in Jerusalem. He really tries to do things um, by the book, as it were. And it does involve the demolition of Zerubbabel's temple, but the taking apart of Zerubbabel's temple coincides. So neatly with the building of the new one that history doesn't really even recognize the difference between the two. Herod's temple is not really regarded as a third temple as much as it is an upgraded version of the second one. Would be the way that, that people tend to look at it. And you can see in this picture how, how glorious this temple would have been. This is a picture of a scale model. It's massive. That's the first striking thing about it. It was a wonder of the ancient world really this temple was. You can see just relative to the buildings around it, how enormous this temple would have been, not to mention extravagant in every material way. There's a quote about this temple from an ancient historian called Josephus. And he says, The exterior of the building lacked nothing that could astound either mind or eye. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. So perhaps... This is the temple. Perhaps this is the the ultimate aim of that Haggai promise. Perhaps. This is the one that the glory of this temple is going to surpass the glory of the former. There are a few problems with that, though. The first one being that Herod did not build this temple out of a desire to serve God. He built it out of a, a desire to immortalize his name in history and have a wonder of the world attached to himself. And he succeeded in doing that. This is called Herod's Temple today in 2023. Beyond that is the fact that the Jews never really had total control of this temple. This is the picture of a same scale model just zoomed out. I want you to look in the top corner there, the top right corner, right up here. There's sort of a compound of like four towers stuck to the back corner of the Temple Mount that you can see there. What do you imagine those towers were for? Jews do you suppose no it's a Roman barracks so that Roman soldiers can stand in those towers they can look down into the temple mount and if there's trouble in there they can run in and police people down in the temple courtyard that's what those towers were for they're still there today actually the remains of those (laughs) barracks still kind of hover over the temple mount Beyond that is the fact that the temple is physically magnificent. There's no denying that, but we don't have any account of the glory of God descending on this temple in the way that it did Solomon's temple. And perhaps most concerning of all about this temple is that the temple proper is completed about 10 and a half years after construction begins, but construction in some capacity is still happening on this temple until about 63 A.D. So the temple stands in total completeness in 63 A.D., but then in 70 A.D., It's destroyed just seven years later. And its end is as inglorious as the first one was, which incidentally brings us to our second argument in favor of the idea that perhaps God did not keep his promise in the book of Haggai, which is that the new temple was destroyed just like the old one was. So there's a lot of conflict and intrigue in this period of world history between vassal Jews in Jerusalem and the Romans, and the temple plays a key role in all of that. And by 70 AD, Romans besiege the city of Jerusalem, and they take it, and they come in, and they completely destroy the temple, and they devastate the city of Jerusalem completely. And this is uh, one artist's depiction of what that might have looked like. It's kind of an upsetting picture. Um, You can see people being thrown and pushed off of the altar all kinds of violence, people being dragged away, people carrying away articles of temple worship. And you'll recall God said in Haggai, in this place I will bring peace. It's a tough quote to put alongside a picture like this. Well, this is a diagram of Herod's temple, pre-destruction, obviously, and I'm showing you this for a reason. I want you to look at this corner right here where that staircase is. You can see there's a staircase that leads up and sort of plugs into the side of the temple mount. Okay? I want you to get that corner imprinted in your mind because this is that same corner but modern. Do I have a... uh, Is there a pointer on this thing? Is it this top button? Okay. There it is. Okay, thank you. Um, Okay, so I want you to look right here. You see this jumble of... Stones look like they're sticking out of the side of the Temple Mount. That is where that staircase from the diagram used to plug into the side of the Temple Mount. So this right here, this row right here, is where that shaded portico area used to be. Okay, that's what that looks like today. So this is that same wall, we're just looking, looking up at it. So right here, along the top there, is that place where the staircase would have plugged into the wall. And I want you to look actually at the bottom, of the very bottom edge of this picture. Right there, you can see the very tip-top of a big pile of rocks. You can see some, some heads of people around the pile of rocks. gives you an idea of how big that pile is. Make sure you can see it over here. It's right here in this bottom edge, the big pile of stones. Well, when the Romans destroyed the temple, there was a lot of debris sitting on top of the temple mount, and they didn't know what to do with all of it. So some of it, they just lined up and shoved it off the edge of the temple mount, and there it sits. It sat there for a couple thousand years. That's what those rocks are. They're remains of Herod's temple. Or at least some part of it that sat on the temple mount. That is what the glory of Herod's temple was reduced to, ultimately. It was dashed down to rubble and dumped off of its own platform by a pagan and Gentile army. It was glorious... But ultimately its end was as inglorious and terrible as the first one. And that's the last that we hear of a temple in Jerusalem. There isn't one after that that we know of. Which incidentally brings us to our third argument in favor of the idea that perhaps God did not keep his promise in the book of Haggai. Which is that the current temple, and I put that in quotes because there's not one, the current temple is not glorious and it's not peaceful. So this is a picture of Jerusalem today and the Temple Mount. So up here, that's Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim shrine, and that platform it's sitting on is where the Temple used to sit. At least it's a part of the Mount where the Temple used to sit. That's what it looks like today. Down here in this bottom right corner, you can see a wall with a bunch of people standing out in front of it. That's called the Western Wall. It's a Jewish holy site because it's part of the original Temple Mount. That wall dates back to Old Testament times. So this is what remains today of the temple situation in Jerusalem. Well, for obvious reasons, Jews in Jerusalem aren't too happy about this situation. There's actually an institute in Jerusalem called the Temple Institute or the Third Temple Institute. And the mission of this institution is to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. Because, they believe, this will usher in a new era of global peace, just like the prophets talked about. And one of the prophets they quote on their website is Haggai. They quote that prophecy from Haggai chapter 2 to support the idea of rebuilding a physical temple in Jerusalem. And I want to put part of their mission statement up here and read it for you. The reality of the Jewish experience means that the temple will be rebuilt. Many people who visit the Temple Institute are incredulous and cannot help but exclaim, do you really think that you will live to see the Holy Temple rebuilt? The answer to that question is of little importance. Let us rather recall that Jewish history has a trajectory which began when the patriarch Abraham smashed his father's idols. That trajectory has spanned the millennia, and it is obvious that we are rapidly approaching climactic times in which the Holy Temple will once again become the focal point for mankind's spiritual focus. Whether this transpires in our generation or not, we can still choose to be active participants and not simply spectators in God's bold plan for the redemption of Israel and all humanity. So I, would, I want to be totally clear about this. The only way that this idea makes any sense is if you do not believe that the last temple was the fulfillment of God's promises about the temple. And they don't believe that. They don't believe that the glory that's talked about in Haggai has been realized. Well, what about the peace? Because that was the second half of that promise, you remember. I will bring peace in this place. If you watch or read the news very much, then you know that the Temple Mount today is a hotly contested religious site. I remember when Farley and I went there, there were armed police everywhere on the Temple Mount, making sure nobody caused trouble. There was a pretty thorough security screening we all had to go through to get in. And I remember one thing our tour guide told us was, do not pray when you're on the Temple Mount. And don't even look like you're praying. Don't kneel down. Don't close your eyes, don't fold your hands, don't sing, don't whisper. Don't do anything that might appear as though you are praying. Because to even look like you're praying on behalf of the wrong religion on the Temple Mount is extremely offensive. And that's the kind of thing that causes riots and you will be thrown out for doing it. So if you are a Jew today... In Jerusalem and the promise was glory and peace and you are operating under the assumption that the physical temple must be the ultimate object of that promise, how in the world are you going to think that those promises have been fulfilled? And Jews today don't think that. They don't believe that God has yet fulfilled the promises he made in Haggai or Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah for that matter because of all the reasons we've talked about tonight and others. And this is a question I think as Christians we need to deal with. Did God keep his promise or not? Did God bring peace in the temple or not? Did the glory of the latter surpass the glory of the former or not? Because if you look at these headlines, if you look at some of the other images we've looked at tonight, it doesn't look like it necessarily. I want to put part of that quote back up that we read a moment ago, uh, the piece of the mission statement from the Temple Institute. I want to just put part of it back up here, reread it. Jewish history has a trajectory which began when the patriarch Abraham smashed his father's idols. That trajectory has spanned the millennia, and the Holy Temple will once again become the focal point for mankind's spiritual focus. So let's remember the premise that we are dealing with right now. That the physical temple in Jerusalem is the end, is the object of God's promises, and that it is the ultimate aim of Jewish history operating under that premise. We cannot say that God fulfilled his promises about the temple because there is not one. There is no temple. It was built and then destroyed and then it was rebuilt and then it was re David talked about that this morning. And now it's replaced by a shrine that belongs to a different, mutually exclusive religion. So no, if the physical temple in Jerusalem was meant to be the end of the biblical trajectory, then we cannot say that God kept his promises about it. The facts do not support that. So we are left with two options, essentially. Either God did not keep his promise, and... We just have to deal with it somehow. Or, he did keep his promise, and our premise is wrong. He did keep his promise, and the folks at the Third Temple Institute and elsewhere missed it somehow. And I would like to present an argument for the latter, that God did keep his promise, that that is true that it is demonstrably true despite the fact that the physical temple in jerusalem is gone god said that that temple would be glorious that he would fill it with his glory and he did god's glory did fill that temple not in a cloud like it did in solomon's day or something like that but in the flesh jesus was brought into that temple in luke chapter 2 when he was a baby for the offering of sacrifices Jesus sat in that temple and told his mother, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus stood on a pinnacle of that temple when he defied Satan's temptation that he should throw himself down to show how powerful he was. Jesus drove through that temple with a whip to get rid of those individuals, to put it in his own words, that would turn the father's house into a den of robbers. Jesus taught inside that temple. He worshiped In that temple, he debated in that temple. He stood up to his enemies in that temple. And when he died, the veil in that temple that separated the most holy place from everybody else but the high priest, that veil was ripped apart because he died. And after he was raised from the dead, 3,000 individuals repented and were baptized in his name. And we're told in Acts chapter 2, those individuals attended day by day together in that temple. So, yes, that temple may have been destroyed, but not before it was filled with God's glory, and not before it hosted the bringing of peace through the life of Jesus and the work of his followers. God kept his promise about that house, that latter house in which Jesus walked. That house was glorious, not because it itself was the end of the biblical trajectory but because it pointed to the end, it framed the end, it hosted the end, it pointed to Jesus, and it pointed to Jesus' new temple. And what's funny, it's not funny, it's uh, it's sad, I suppose, maybe ironic. The folks at the Temple Institute in this quote are absolutely correct. The holy temple is the focal point for mankind's spiritual focus. It's just not the one that they built. It's the temple that Jesus built. That temple is the focal point. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. The writer of Hebrews says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest to the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Jesus said to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. He was not talking about the temple mount when he said that. He was talking about the work of his disciples, built upon Jesus as the cornerstone, like David talked about this morning. We are God's temple now. Jesus stands as the focal point of our temple worship. Jesus is the vindicator of the promise we've been talking about all night, and others like it. Jesus is the answer to every question about those promises, and Jesus is the comfort in the face of the physical destruction of Jerusalem and the house of God that used to stand there. Jesus is the reason that the glory of that latter house surpassed the glory of the former, just like God said it would to those people who were discouraged about it. And Jesus is the means by which God brings peace to us, to his temple. And that's why today we worship him, not the temple. And we cling to him not the memory of old Jerusalem. So you have an opportunity tonight to become a part of that temple if you'd like to. We can baptize you in Jesus' name. You can put him on. You can start living for his cause. You can start living out his principles. You can start carrying your life out as an act of worship to him as part of his holy temple by becoming a Christian. So if you'd like to do that, we invite you to step into an aisle and make your way to the front. While together we stand and sing.